is, right? What do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Amber May Show. I am so glad you're joining me today because we are diving deeper into the censorship of medical journals. And when scientists come together and uncover something that's very damning, their powers that be want to shut it down and we are going to get into that show. And I'm going to bring something to your knowledge. I've had a really hard time connecting with him. Uh, with with uh, Nathaniel Mead, and I think that there is because he is uncovering something that's major, and maybe this is just a conspiracy theory. But you know, our our episode had some issues, and you're going to hear about some of that that with the internet issues. And I realized it happens on only certain topics and certain shows, so it might not be too far fetched. So that's on today's show. So please like, share, and subscribe. If you believe in what I'm doing, please consider becoming an angel investor. And the easiest way to do that is going to theambermayshow.com and hit the donate button. I'm also on Telegram. Join me there at theambermayshow, true social anime, frank social anime, and cloud of find me on those locations. But without any further ado, I'd love to have uh, Nathaniel Lee join us on the program today. Welcome back, friends. Like I said, we have Nathaniel Mead joining us today. So I want to welcome you to the program. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Amber. Great to be here. Yeah. You know, we have a mutual friend and they introduced us and I wanted to make sure I had you on the show because, you know, we are going to highlight some censorship that is affecting us all. And when it comes really down to it, it affects us our informed consent because we're going to be looking to physicians and scientists to answer questions that we, the layman, don't know. And so when it, when you really strip away everything, it, it boils down to lacking informed consent. And we're going to get into that with your scientific paper. But before that, we need to know who Nathaniel is, why you're writing a paper, how do you get involved in this stuff? So, so tell us a little bit about you. Well, I am a... Uh... I'm a research scientist. I have training in the biological sciences, in uh, science education. I actually taught high school biology for a while. I was in the doctoral program for nutritional epidemiology at the UNC School of Public Health. And, um, and I kind of went into hiding uh, in the early part of the pandemic because, frankly, I was... Uh, afraid of all of the censorship that I saw happening early on. And I have a family and, um, you know, I was worried about the repercussions if I spoke out. So I was afraid and um, uh, just admit it, you know. (laughs) Uh, And and I was also really inspired by people like Peter McCullough, uh, Jessica Rose, Stephanie Seneff. Uh, These are people I recently co-authored with uh, on this really wonderful paper um, that I envisioned. So um, I guess uh, 
you know, that's a very brief introduction, but I, I can tell you that um, the way I got interested in all this and ca- kind of came out of the closet or came out of hiding is that uh, I, um, I, was in, I, I saw a message from Steve Kirsch uh, inviting scientists from around the world to participate in a, in a discussion to help support his debate process. So uh, I sent in my resume and cover letter, and um, I was accepted into the the group, and uh, we had these wonderful discussions. And in the course of that, I started to, I've been a science writer for many, many years and uh, written a number of books and uh, mostly ghostwritten, um, but um, I've, I've, had the pleasure of collaborating with scientists before. And I just thought, okay, well, let's, let's write this really great paper that explains everything that's happened over the last four years and to try to make it make sense out of it from a scientific perspective, because I thought there was so much confusion. There was so much disinformation coming from the government, Mm -hmm. uh, especially the centers for deception and control. I mean, center for disease and control. Um, (laughs) And, um, and so, you know, there was this kind of um, constant uh, sense of uh, uh, everyone needing more coherence in, in the, in the uh, story. And, and so that was the impetus for writing this paper. Okay. Um, yeah. But what kind of stuff did you previously write about? Because you said you've been writing for a long time. So I assume that means you've been uh, published in scientific journals before and you've written yeah. books yourself. So what kinds of stuff would you talk about and write about? Well, I have over 40 articles on PubMed, which is mm-hmm. you know, a really good way to get access to um, scientific papers. Um, not nearly as much as Dr. McCullough, but um, and uh, I wrote uh, a lot of articles about environmental health issues. Um, I wrote about you know toxic issues that were affecting pregnancy and early development. Uh, a lot about cancer. I've written books on cancer. I've contributed a lot of um, uh, articles. I mean uh, chapters to to uh, medical books on cancer. Most recently, I wrote a medical textbook that was published last year. Um, on medical thermography, which is looking at infrared imaging of the body um, and how it reflects disease process. Because when you have inflammation, you can actually see it with really high tech, uh, sophisticated infrared cameras. Wow. So, so what were, what were your findings about cancer? Cause that's fascinating. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> that's a big question. I mean, uh, you know, you mean in, in the context of COVID or in, and the and the injections or no in like things that you've written about like what oh. yeah well I mean again it's a, it's a huge topic uh, but I, one of the areas I've really been interested in I mean in general we can say that cancer is driven by the interaction or intersection between inflammation chronic inflammation and um, and growth factors, okay, various growth factors that are, um, you know, hormonal. Um, they're they're also, um, you know, like insulin-like growth factors and so forth. So these are things that all kind of collaborate in the creation of cancer. And cancer is 
you know, a multifactorial disease like most other diseases. So it's, it's driven by this complex array of factors. And um, I think it's always kind of almost amusing to me when people try to figure out what caused my cancer, because, you know, it's, it's really a crapshoot when you, when you look at it from the standpoint of, of factors that were probably present in early life that interacted with the genetic makeup of the person and then factors that came in later in life. But these are usually patterns of living and interacting with the environment that help bring cancer out, you know. But I would say one of the interesting, uh, most important points about cancer that many people don't realize is that cancer is often percolating below the surface before it gets actually diagnosed. So it's there for quite some time. And then when people are diagnosed with it, they freak out and they say, oh my gosh, I've got cancer, but they've been coexisting with it for decades. Hmm. You know, So it's kind of a fascinating thing from that standpoint. And, and if, if you get people to look back on, okay, what, how was I eating? What were my stress habits? You know, my other lifestyle and environmental factors that were part of my, my life, you know, to look at those and try to change them. Have you um, looked into vaccines as a contribution contribution to cancers? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we we addressed that in our in our paper, uh, in our narrative review, but we didn't go into it in a, in great depth. In the original uh, drafts of the paper, we did go into it a lot more depth, but during the extensive peer review process, where we had to go back and make changes, we ended up reducing the cancer part quite a bit in the paper. Um, so, um, but clearly, um, you know, there is a, uh, a strong argument and there is evidence that these, uh, COVID-19 mRNA vaccines are, are triggering cancers like cancers that were latent, you know, and then have been below the surface mm -hmm. or, or cancers that are dormant after someone went into remission, triggering those mm -hmm. cancers. Um, you know, I would you even know, argue with you that you could um, find evidence with childhood vaccine can uh, schedule of absolutely. Like some of the ingredients that they put in there. And oh. I would also um, want to ask yeah. you, have you ever heard of fembendazole with ivermectin to treat cancer? Yep. Yep. In fact, yep. I've, I've recommended that to people. I, I've been, a, 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 as a consultant to integrative medicine clinics um, in North Carolina, um, I was often asked to help uh, with protocols, uh, you know, as, as um, part of uh, guiding physicians on new ways to treat cancer. And, and um, ivermectin was not something I was aware about until the pandemic, but um, Clearly, it, it has real benefits with cancer and fenbendazole also. So it's really, uh, there are some other off-label drugs that are really quite effective and, and easy to get a hold of that can help people live much longer. Yeah. So, yeah. That's fantastic. We need more people like you because I honestly think big pharma and the CDC and, and, and people like that. I don't think they want this information to come out because there's a lot of money to be 
made if they if people are always getting cancer. I mean, we have so much. There's not one person on this planet that's never been affected by cancer. Not one person. My best yeah. friend, she died at, at 36, I think, 38, something like that, uh, a couple years ago of breast cancer. And it was metastatic. And they thought at Mayo Clinic that they got it all. And they did not. And so it went metastatic and she ended up dying. And and my uncle, I mean, my uncle died at 39. I had a, a boy that I knew who died at six from cancer. And, and when I, as a mom, looking back and researching uh, childhood vaccines, I have found yeah. along with uh, Dr. Brian Artis, that there are ingredients in there that are cancer causing ingredients. And it's just like, yeah wow, are we, have we been poisoning ourselves like all this time? And then you, then you come into the COVID-19 shot that just brings cancer from a stage one to a stage four. It's just like, wow, wow. It's just unbelievable. But I, yeah. I for the first time I heard about the fembenzazole with the can with the ivermectin. And I'm like, well, this is some good yeah. news that we're coming out with. I like that. Yeah, fembenzazole. And I mean, it's, it's, the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other very useful pharmaceuticals that could help people uh, in the context of cancer. My specialty has really been nutritional oncology. You know, looking at the nutritional factors and how they can be changed because people tend to think in, of drugs as being much more powerful, mm -hmm. but nutrition nutrition is really critical because it keeps the immune system stronger. It helps keep your inflammatory burden down, you know, so everything can improve with good nutrition. And going back to the vaccines, you know, the COVID-19 vaccines, the two things that, you know, it really, on a very basic level, the two things that it does that are, are promoting cancer, allowing cancer to move forward much more rapidly is number one, they're causing immune dysfunction in mm -hmm. many different ways. Mm -hmm. Multiple mechanisms of immune dysfunction. Uh, I'm not gonna go into those because it's it's not necessary. We write about some of them in our paper, um, but um, th that's a broad group of mechanisms that clearly it's like taking the brakes off of the cancer because the mm -hmm. immune system can, can keep cancer in check, you know, for, mm -hmm. for a good while. Um, very specific immune mechanism to do that. Uh, the second thing that the vaccines are doing is, you know, is that they're causing this chronic inflammation in and around areas where there might be cancer cells. So our cancer cell, and you have that inflammation going on, you're going to uh, make the cancer much more active and it's going to be much more likely to progress quickly Hey friends, are you feeling constantly fatigued? Dealing with constant chronic fatigue where it's hard to get out of bed, it's hard to go to work, it's hard to play with the kids, it's just hard to do life? That's no life at all. And maybe you're overweight. Is it hard for you to lose weight? If these are problems that you're dealing with, perhaps you have a hormone imbalance. I would really highly recommend that you go see Dr. Meehan at MeehanMD.com. Because he is an expert in balancing hormones and getting our body working at optimum health. 
So if you're looking for a doctor you can trust, you just feel off. You don't feel your, the way you want to feel like you did a couple years ago, five years ago. Maybe you've been dealing with this for many years. Stop dealing with it. Start living life. So go check out mehanmd.com. When you're there, let him know Amber May sent you because he can help you get the health that you want, restore your body's hormonal balances back to the way God created it and make you feel better. And while you're there, check out his supplemental store. He has amazing supplements to help support all kinds of functions in the body. Whether you're trying to support your immune health, your gut health, maybe you have trouble sleeping, go check him out at mehandmd.com. When you're there, use promo code AMBER at checkout. I'm Abe Hamaday, and you're watching The Amber May Show. Hey, so when you are a guest at the Amber May's house, you get luxury. And how you get luxury is I have this uh, sleeping couch, this sleeper sofa, and you're telling me that's not luxury. It is when you put a MyPillow mattress topper on it. All my guests that have come over and stayed at my house have really enjoyed this uh, sleeper sofa, which says a lot because uh, they're getting to sleep on the MyPillow pillows and you get the MyPillow mattress topper and then it doesn't stop there with the luxury because when you shower at the Anime Show's house, you get to have a MyPillow towel. I don't have the kids using it. I just let the adults have the luxury. So the adults get to use the MyPillow and they're phenomenal. And right now there's a massive sale going on with the MyPillow towels. So you should really put luxury into your home and live it every day like Amber May does every day. So I have a MyPillow mattress topper on my bed. I use the MyPillow sheets, the MyPillow towels, the MyPillow slippers. I live luxury and I don't have to pay the luxury price because uh, my pillow has promo code. So use my name, Amber, and save up to 66% off and you can live luxurious as well. listening to the Amber May show and now we return to the show already in progress so those two basic factors are what I think are driving and um, you know it's it's um, the, the, the rapid progression of these cancers you know that they call turbo cancers mm-hmm. um, I listened to an interview with William Mackis recently who is a I think a really great a Canadian oncologist uh, who has studied this quite a bit. He's got a, a stack talk about um, turbo cancers quite a bit. And I was surprised that he didn't mention the term hyperprogression because hyperprogression is the scientific term for what you see with these turbo cancers. And it has been seen before with uh, immune therapies. It's ironic, but immune th- Experimental immune therapies, some of them actually cause hyperprogression in a small number of people, okay, mm. in, a, in a small percentage of people for reasons that are somewhat obscure. But that, you know, uh, that, that's a scientific term that now it's being called turbo cancer, but I, I, I think it's fair to call it hyperprogression. And it is, it is shocking. I've seen it. I've seen it in young people. I've seen it in older people uh, following the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. In fact, one of my closest friends of 35 years uh, developed a, a acute myeloid leukemia, which 
showed up after his uh, second booster right mm. afterwards, immediate, immediately afterwards, like the symptoms actually showed up the day after. And then he started to, you know, progress toward the diagnosis. I think it was like a month later, but then he died within a couple of months. I mean, it was that fast. It, it, it is unbelievable how fast these things are happening. It's like wildfire spreading through a, a dry forest, you know, uh, but they were and, safe but, and effective, um, Nathaniel. They were safe and effective. How, yeah, how is yeah, it so, possible that we had turbo cancers on a vaccine that was safe and effective? Isn't that what we were always told? Safe and effective. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's, you know, I think that that also was what made me motivated to write this paper, uh, which is titled COVID-19 mRNA Vaccines. Lessons learned from the registrational trials and global vaccination campaign. It was published on January 24th in the medical journal Curious, C-U-R-E-U-S. It has now been retracted under pressure from, we're sure, the pharmaceutical industry mm. because it was so devastating because we clearly showed very strongly that these are unsafe and ineffective. And we didn't show that. The research is showing we put research together in a way that uh, helps people understand how they were deceived through the original clinical trials that were used to authorize these products, these, these RNA vaccines, um, how they were deceived, and then what happened after the trials uh, allowed the authorization and, and the the information that came out afterwards was devastating about mm -hmm. how unsafe and how effective they were. Um, and we're still, I mean, that safe and effective line was used so much, as you know, that many people became convinced that it was gospel mm -hmm. and they, and it, and it kind of hypnotized people, you know, mm -hmm. it was like safe, safe and effective. You, you would see it, in various contexts, like even in commercials and, you know, and it was, it was like a subliminal programming of the population mm -hmm. that um, even to this day, um, I mean, I was at a social gathering recently. Uh, so kind of shocked to see a couple of people still wearing masks, February, 2024. Uh, it was a big social gathering and, um, I was talking with an old friend of mine and he's a very intelligent guy and uh, he uh, was injured by the vaccines with through kidney damage. And he acknowledged that it was the vaccines. He knew that it was, he was an intelligent guy. He knew it because of the timing of the shots and all of that. And because he did some research and he found that there is indeed uh, a kidney aspect to this. In fact, uh, the mortality rate has been clearly linked to kidney uh, failure as well. But, um, but the same guy who I respect, he's an old friend of mine. He, um, he said, well, I still think on balance, the vaccines, you know, were more beneficial than harmful. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I recently, he didn't know about the paper I'd written. And, um, so I, I mentioned it to him and he got extremely defensive and, um, and I realized that, you know, this, this program, it, it, it's, it's very strong. You know, some people call it brainwashing, but 
you know, that's a pejorative term, but it's a heavy programming that has happened through uh, mass media and social media mm -hmm. and through the conversations that people have had as a result of that, reinforcing a kind of socially, a social consensus on what mm -hmm. the truth is. And it's created a huge division in our culture, as you know, in our, mm -hmm. in our society. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's really sad. It's sad to me because I think the division continues even to this day. I mean, to see how fired up he got when I said, well, actually, I have to tell you that, you know, from a scientific perspective, you're wrong, <laughs> you know, and he got, he said, well, I've done my research. And I, and this is a guy who doesn't have any training in the sciences. You know, he's, he's, he's a kind of philosophy background and, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, a lot of people think that they can understand what has happened on their own by going in and doing their research, but it's complicated. There's so much deception, especially from the Centers for Disease Control mm -hmm. and the uh, FDA, mm -hmm. has been worse. And the problem is that most scientists like myself, when we came into this pandemic in 2020, we trusted the CDC. Mm -hmm. We actually, we believed that they were the last scientific agency that still had integrity. Mm -hmm. um, even the NIH was already considered to be corrupt, but the CDC people thought, okay, we can at least trust the CDC. And that was a misunderstanding. Many of us did not realize that the CDC had gotten rid of the, the scientists who had integrity. So the scientists who were there mm -hmm. were the ones who were all telling lies. and. Mm -hmm the uh, studies that they published and the, and the statistics that they published were fundamentally flawed and they were causing a huge amount of misunderstanding in the public. And that mm -hmm. continues to this day because if you say, you know, like to my friend, I said to him, uh, you know, if you were using the CDC statistics, I, I hate to tell you, but they were all flawed and you were misled. And that made him so angry. You know, it, because, it does, because think about it. You there was a level yeah. of trust that yeah. that the, that we all that a lot of us had. I I'm I ended up not really trusting them after you know, I I but a lot yeah. of people trusted the CDC, a lot of people trusted the FDA, a lot of people trusted their government. And they've had so much trust because there's been so many, so many years and decades of programming. And yes. they're so good yeah. at programming because I have interviewed former soldiers who were a part of PSYOPs, uh, psychological operations. And mm -hmm. the government is so good at it. And, you know, the CIA is so good at it. And yeah. um, different agencies are so good at it that they are able and have been very successful because we learn about all this stuff in elementary school and high school about um, the FDA because, you know, we learn about, you know, FDR and how he brought in the FDA for our protection, you know, so yeah. all these bad things that people want to put into our, our bodies, you know, there's a there's a watchdog looking out for us. But when you really look at it and you pull back the curtain, they are a propaganda arm. How are you supposed to be the watchdog? And yet you have all these things on your website that are nothing but propaganda encouraging you to take these things 
when you're supposed to be the watchdog, like if you really like took a critical eye and went on and looked, looked at some of the stuff that the CDC was putting out or the FDA was putting out, it was nothing more than propaganda. Well, and, yeah. The other aspect to this, though, is that the pharmaceutical industry, Peter McCullough refers to it, this as the biopharmaceutical complex. The, the, the collaboration between the agencies that you just mentioned and the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. which has been doing this for a very long time. They've been actually uh, doing this since at least the 1970s. I would they, even say it probably goes back further with the Rockefellers getting involved in medicine. Sure, but, but, but clinical trials did not start until gotcha. the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And once the clinical trials came in, clinical trials were considered to be the gold standard, you mm-hmm. know, especially r- randomized placebo-controlled double-blind studies. Mm-hmm. They're considered to be the gold standard for proving that something is true. Mm-hmm. But what many people don't realize is that you can still have very bad randomized clinical trials. You can, they can be corrupted by f- faulty methods that uh, involve not reporting the adverse events. And that's what we showed in our paper is that the two, the Pfizer and Moderna trials that were in the beginning of the, you know, preceding the authorization and allowing the authorization of these products, those trials were fundamentally flawed because they underreported the adverse events and they hid this from the public until Mm. after the authorization. Mm. including the deaths, you know? So, uh, and, and that the, the FDA was complicit in this because the government had put so much money into mRNA research prior to the pandemic. They put billions of dollars of research into it. They continued to pour tens of billions of dollars into mRNA after the authorization, okay? So they were heavily invested in this as part of their agenda. They wanted the mRNA vaccines to get out there. Mm -hmm. They had a strong bias. And so the FDA just turned their heads when when the Pfizer and Moderna people brought their data and the data was clearly missing lots of pieces. Like for example, 400 people were missing in the Pfizer trial, you know, that they say, well, what happened with four, you know, they should have said, did you follow up with those 400 people? Did you try to find out what happened to them? Where did they go? Did they die? You know, if they died, what did they die of? How many were in the in the vaccine group? You know, those kinds of things would have been very helpful to us after the Pfizer and Moderna people brought the results forward. But the FDA didn't do that. They just said, let's let's rush this authorization process. We've got a crisis, which, as you and I both know, was was basically manufactured mm-hmm. because they denied people mm-hmm. early treatment. They wouldn't give people mm-hmm. ivermectin. And to this day, I will tell you, this is another thing that blows my mind because I encountered it when I spoke with my friend that I mentioned at this, uh, at this party. He, he said, well, you don't believe ivermectin has any benefit, do you? Hey, I'm going to get to that thought in just a second, but right now I'm going to take a quick break. Hi, this is Ben Miller from the Blood Money Podcast. I'm here to say don't ever miss an episode of the wonderful Amber May Podcast. 
Hey friends, I want to tell you what I recently did. I broke away from the big three. I was tired of the woke mobile and I wanted to go to a Christian conservative company that I could trust that support the organizations that I value and that is Patriot Mobile. So when you go to patriotmobile.com slash Amber, you are going to get free activation. It is super easy to get started to switch from the big free to Patriot Mobile. They'll walk you step by step. It is not difficult at all. And I've had tremendous service since I made the switch. So I recommend if you want to vote with your wallet and, and support a company that supports your values, go to patriotmobile.com slash Amber and save on free activation. So that's patriotmobile.com slash Amber. Now the links are in the description below or on my website at theandermayshow.com slash promo. So check that out. So it's time to vote with our wallet, ditch the woke mobile, and go to a Christian conservative mobile. And that is patriotmobile.com slash Amber. You are listening to the Amber May Show and now we return to the show already in progress. See? Even physicians today, when I have asked physicians for ivermectin, yeah. they look at me like I'm insane. Why is that so bad? It won a Nobel Peace Prize. African people use it all the time for viruses. So it's been around for decades. It has a low, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, parasites. Yeah, for parasites. And right. hydroxychloroquine. And, and they both, hydroxychloroquine, you know, was used during the Vietnam War. It was tested on over a million soldiers. So you have, um, we knew what the, the margin of safety was for using it. And yet what, this is a great example, what the, what the vaccine industry did is they set up studies to make hydroxychloroquine look bad. They did the same thing with ivermectin. And that's what the industry does in order to eliminate the counter narrative. Because as you and I both know, if ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine had been allowed to be used in the public in 2020, first of all, 85% of all the people who died would never have died. That's right. Because they would have had, they would have had access to that early treatment, but which is in itself is criminal. Mm -hmm. But second, secondly, because as you know, because those things were denied, there was no competition with the vaccine. If those things had been there, the vaccines could never have been allowed on the market through Bingo. a rush, a rushed authorization process. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, the, the paper explains all this, but it also, I think it gives people a really clear idea of the, um, the, the horrible risks that have been imposed, especially for the younger populations. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about the older people, mm -hmm. but I'll just say briefly that Based on the CDC's data with nursing homes with over, I think it's well over 14,000, it might be close to 15,000 nursing homes. Um, it's very clear that the frail elderly people were killed at a very high rate by these vaccines. I hate mm -hmm. to use that word. Mm -hmm. So it's such a, a strong word. Mm -hmm. But these injections in frail elderly people are extremely dangerous. And, you know, our estimates based on the CDC's nursing home data, which we did not publish this in our paper because it's, it's going in another paper that a group of scientists in Europe are working on. Um, but one out of 100 injections caused a death uh, mm -hmm. in, in the nursing. Now, in the broader population, it's one out of 800. 
which is still really alarming because one out of 800 is, and this is serious adverse events, not deaths, but serious adverse events, which can include death, but it also includes mm -hmm. like life-threatening things like various kinds of stroke, hemorrhagic, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, uh, bleeding in the brain and mm -hmm. also blood clot issues and, mm -hmm. and heart attacks and pulmonary embolism and all that stuff. So all of that is, those are considered life-threatening events and they're called serious adverse events. So one out of eight, so one injection. Not, oh, not to mention that, but I had Dr. James Thorpe on, who's, who's an OBGYN yeah. and he oh, yeah. even said it affects fertility. Yeah, and, yeah. And especially women, and I think men too. Um, and right. then you have the heart disease that goes along with it. And then you had mentioned earlier about the kidneys. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so again, uh, just for the listeners, you know, uh, one out of so eight, eight, 800 injections, um, you know, one out of those 800 is going to be a serious adverse event. And in the past, you know, the threshold was one out of a million. Okay, so the the official serious adverse rate, event rate for other vaccines is one to two out of a million. So that was considered a threshold. But the the analysis that Joseph Freeman did when he looked back at the Pfizer trial data was one out of eight hundred. So it was a six hundred fold increase in the threshold and just for comparison in 1976 the swine flu vaccine was mm -hmm. pulled off the market after being associated with Guillain-Barre syndrome uh at a rate of one out of a hundred thousand okay mm -hmm. so, and just so you know just so my listeners know Guillain-Barre is still one of the highest warning signs they have in the flu vaccine still to this day and this yeah flu vaccine right and uh, and then the rotavirus vaccine was pulled. Uh, it was one out of ten thousand, or or two, one to two out of ten thousand. But you know, when you compare that to one out of eight hundred, um, you, you have to say that this is an insane situation. This is actually an insane situation that we're facing to this day. The fact that these are on the childhood immunization schedule is is clearly criminal. It's criminal because mm -hmm. we now know that a child's, uh, based on prospective studies, where they look forward in time after the child's been injected and they monitor the heart condition, the rate of myocarditis, which can result in permanent heart damage, you know, a scarring of the heart, which leads down the road to heart failure, okay, decades later, okay? So, People say, well, it's mild, you know, they have a little pain in their heart, and, you know, but the problem is that you've damaged the heart for life. It's a scar in the heart and it's two to 3% of, of all uh, young people mm -hmm. uh, under, under age 40, really. Mm -hmm. uh, adolescent teens have a rate of, uh, that is 37 times. Okay, this is, this is a clear number. Okay, I'm not making this up. The rate of myocarditis in adolescent teens is 37 times higher than the rate of myocarditis caused by COVID infection. Okay, 37 times higher. 
because the rate is 2.2% in myocard in, in teens, and it's 0.06% in um, uh, the, the SARS-CoV-2 infection. So, so these are uh, clearly showing that they should not be given in elderly people, they should not be given in young people. Uh, I don't think they really have any benefit, to be honest with you. And, and what we show in the paper too, is that people clearly get more COVID if they get the shots. In other words, the natural immunity is so much better, you know, getting exposed to the virus. And even though the virus is not something I, I think is a good thing because it's a bioweapon, but mm -hmm. clearly your, your chances of, of doing better uh, in the long term are, are much stronger with natural infection by the virus. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the vaccines, uh, I think if we could get them off the childhood immunization schedule, and this is why our paper, I think, was the biggest threat to the industry and why they had it taken out, why it was retracted. Um, and if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just talk about that for a minute. Please. Uh, yes. Okay. okay. Um, because this is really relating to a, a very serious issue that's affecting all of science and it's, it's censorship. And, um, you know, we were, um, we were, we were published in January, January 24th, um, of this year, 2024. And the paper was published in, a, in a, a journal called Curious, which I mentioned, the Journal of Medical Science. Um, it's a peer review journal. So it went through extensive peer review um, with eight independent reviewers. And that was a very exhausting process mm -hmm. because they would send comments and criticisms of the paper. I had to respond. Sometimes my responses were two or three paragraphs, and there were over 200 comments. So do the math. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I had to actually take out things, you know, so I would take out sentences, take out, you know, based on their recommendation. So it went back and forth and back and forth. The editors of the journal were very nice. We really liked the editors. They're curious, um, good people with good intentions. Um, but I knew when I hit that button at the very end, after I had gone through all the requests from the editors to make the final changes from the reviewers, and I had to press the publish button. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a very dramatic moment. I had already tried to publish it several times, but they had said, no, you got to resubmit it because there's still problems. So mm -hmm. we had gone through and resubmitted it a few times. But finally, on January 24th, I hit the publish button. It was accepted after this exhausting process, multiple submissions. And I knew as soon as I pressed that button that we were dealing with a ticking time bomb mm. because we were citing solid evidence and we were exposing the industry-sponsored trials and how they deceived the public. And our, our paper is totally supported by evidence. So it was an indictment on the COVID-19 vaccine enterprise. And in our paper, we not only show, you know, why and how these COVID shots cause so much um, disability and suffering, but we also show how they cause death and how they cause mm. far more death uh, than any presumed uh, life saved. 
you know, by the vaccine in terms of the COVID preventing COVID deaths. So by providing that evidence, we knew we were playing with fire. And, mm -hmm. and that's why I said in multiple interviews, in fact, the night before it got retracted, I was on with Peter McCullough and Dr. McCullough and I um, were talking about the paper and, you know, answering questions on why it was so important. At the very end, the last thing I said was, please download the paper as much as possible because it could get retracted any day, you know. And sure enough, the next morning it was, and this was uh, a major TV cable channel I announced it on. And, and um, but basically the retraction that we receive, you receive a letter and so we got a letter from Springer Nature, which is the publisher. It's the largest medical publisher in the world. And I did not know this, but Springer had acquired um, Curious in um, December of 2022. Mm. Okay. And one of the reasons that we had gone to Curious was that I had heard that they were resisting pressure to get their papers retracted mm. because as people can guess, a lot of the funding for these journals comes from the pharmaceutical industry. And some journals rely on it much more than others. Mm. The journals that have all open access, which means that you can access their papers for free, that, like Curious, they depend on it very heavily because they depend on that funding from the pharmaceutical industry because they're giving away free content. So they have to be able to you know, support their, their journal. So they, they get, you know, advertising and then they get uh, sponsoring, even sponsorship of content, of actual content that's being published is influenced heavily by the pharmaceutical industry. And many people don't realize that. They don't realize that, that articles are actually selected to reflect the pharmaceutical agenda. And that, uh, to me, as a layperson, that, that, that nullifies that organization because they're supposed to be a place we can go to to get informed consent on whatever we're looking up whether it's a disease or a medication or a vaccine yeah, so yeah. if you have the people that the the, the pharmaceutical oh. industry sponsoring this medical journal you're expecting trouble like to a lay person that's just a given that we're going to have trouble right. what are your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's true. I think we're, you know, it's, um, there are a lot of false narratives out there because they're, they're driven by a hidden agenda that has to do with, well, making a lot of money off these things, for one thing. They, they made billions and some would say possibly over a trillion or more um, just from the pandemic. Um, so there, there is, there is a lot of money involved and it, it leads to, uh, trying to control the messaging and, you know, you would not think that that would happen in the scientific world. You would hope that it wouldn't happen, but it is, it is happening. Um, but what we saw when I read the retraction letter, I recognized immediately that it was not, even though they were saying, this is what the uh, editors-in-chief of Curious are, are, are saying these eight points. And we said, no, 
That's clearly not coming from them. It's coming from the publisher and it's coming from the people who are pulling the strings behind the scenes with the publisher. Because when we read the eight points, I couldn't believe how, first of all, two of the, the first two points were taken verbatim from two of the comments that were made below our paper that were from the pharmaceutical industry trolls. Because they send their trolls out there after we publish a paper that threatens the narrative and they write all this nasty stuff about your co-authors and mm -hmm. about the paper and they lie. They lie openly. And they so do that to us too. Uh, all of us who are trying to do an alternative media, they do yeah. that too. They send their yeah. trolls out to yeah. lie about the content we're publishing. So That's it right. tries to discredit us. That's right. So they did that with this. And the first two statements were actually taken verbatim from comments made by one of the trolls in the same paragraph. Two, the, so two out of the eight came verbatim <laughs> from the one paragraph from the troll below our article. So I saw that and I went, well, that's a little strange. Don't you even have the intelligence to change the language? You know, like, why would you actually use the exact same language? But then the other thing is, so clearly the person who was sent by the uh, publisher to do this, because it did come from the publisher, but then they blamed the editors of Curious. Of they said, no, the, this is they, they, they scapegoated them. Mm -hmm. but. The four points that I found most amazing out of the eight were literally like position statements from the vaccine industry. I, I'm not making this up. The four points basically uh, are, first of all, that the mRNA vaccines are not gene therapy products. Okay. That's what they, that, and we, we clearly showed that they are in our it paper. Is. I mean, and, and they're documented, it's documented. So we gave the, the actual research to support it. So that was the first point. And then um, that the products are not contaminated with high levels of bacterial DNA, okay? Which we disproved that, we showed the documentation for that. Then they had the, this is amazing. They said the spike protein does not linger in the body or cause um, adverse events. That's not true. Events which is like, that's mind blowing because, you know, there are dozens of scientific papers that now show that. Mm -hmm. And then amazingly, they actually had the gall to say that these mRNA vaccines uh, underwent adequate safety and efficacy testing, which is completely false. In fact, it's the whole premise of our paper. It's like that our paper never would have been considered by curious or by the editors, if mm. that had been false, they never would have considered that mm. because that was the, the fundamental uh, foundation, uh, conceptual foundation from which the whole paper derived its arguments. So, you know, obviously these products never underwent adequate safety and, and, and effectiveness testing, never. And, and that's because by definition, and this was like, Anybody, anybody who is arguing, if you if you have a family member or friend, and you're you're trying to make this claim, this is all you have to say because this is all this is the, the basic fact. Pfizer and Moderna trials were only two to three months long. The controlled trials were only two to three months long. The average time for testing a vaccine prior to this was ten years. 
the usual time frame was 10 to 15 years for testing whether a vaccine is safe and effective. Okay. So, well, let me stop you there, uh, Mr. Nathaniel, because I have come yeah. across some research where they have only tested seven days, 28 days on some of these vaccines. So, not yeah. all of them are 10 years long. A lot of them on the childhood vaccine schedule are sh much shorter. And that well, was, that's... I was blown away when I came across that. And that was from the FDA package inserts. That's different, though. That's for the childhood immunization schedule. Okay. Which is a little different because what you're talking about there is they take the bigger studies that they've done and then they do a study of children that is very short and they do it short on purpose because they don't want to see adverse events in those kids. Bingo. Number one. Right. And so, and that's what they, I think that's what they were doing in this study as well um, in, in the two trials that were used to say that these things are 95% effective. And so, to your point, when you talked about the placebo trial, Aaron Siri, he's an attorney and he works with the vaccine injured and he came and testified in front of the Arizona state legislature. And he said that 72 vaccine doses did not have, a, and this is the childhood vaccine, did not have a placebo trial. So I think what you're uncovering, and these are the ones that he came across, and it's on my website, and you can see all the, all of the childhood vaccines that have not had a double, uh, that did not have a placebo trial. Um, it, everything that you're saying about your paper and your COVID study, you can find that to be true for a lot of other vaccines. Yeah, and and that point about not having placebo, we didn't even say that in our paper because. <laughs> I think it's a kind of ironic that prior to this, all of those trials had no true placebos or the vast majority did not have actual placebos used in, in the trial. They were actually, they would put things like adjuvants and other things mm -hmm. in the so-called placebo, mm -hmm. but the placebo still had biological activity that was, that was uh, often uh, toxic or adverse. So the placebos were, were not a comparison group at all. But in our, in, in the, I don't say our, in the uh, trials that we looked at, um, you know, which is Pfizer and Moderna, they apparently did use a placebo, um, but um, what they did was that they, they um, got the placebo groups to get vaccinated as quickly as possible after two to three months so that they could get rid of the control group. Because if they had had a control group to follow, we all know what would have happened. Mm -hmm. It would have shown a dramatic difference in heart problems, starting with, you know, and then the various other problems, the autoimmune disease problems, mm -hmm the hematological, the clotting, huge clots that we're seeing that are horrible and that are causing all kinds of problems. And then the um, neurological problems, mm -hmm. you know, the dizziness and, and all of that. Um, although in younger people, I would say the main problems that are seen are heart, cardiac mm -hmm. issues by far, mm -hmm. especially very active people. So the, you know, what they did is it, it was really horrible. But criminal. Going, going back to our paper, we think that 
that this is basically what you would call a uh, predatory retraction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, Nathaniel. You are so right because you and the other authors on this paper were hitting some critical elements of deception. And that we cannot, as a public, make informed consent if we don't have all the information. And the the safe and effective was a big lie. And you and your fellow colleagues uncovered it. And so now the solution is, because um, we're getting close to the end of our program, um, and I always like the solution part because I want to bring people hope. So they have captured every industry. They've captured the school system, the government, medicine, uh, media, you name it. They have captured every agency and you and the other physicians that you're working with and other scientists have seen that to be true. So just like what we're doing with this, um, the media side and having a free free speech platform, we have to now do that for people like you and in the scientific community. So what are some ideas that you have coming up about building your own platform in, in just a few minutes? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, you know, when I said this is a predatory retraction, it's because they're suppressing the findings that we are mm-hmm. trying to reveal to the public. So we have to find a way to stop that. And uh, these predatory practices, they only benefit the biopharmaceutical mm-hmm. complex. And they cast doubt on the research, and then they damage the author's reputations and all of that. So we need to have an independent publishing realm that involves uh, journals that are uh, – not going to uh, be manipulated by the pharmaceutical industry, and they that has to involve independent funding. You know, so we can't have any conflicts of interest because these conflicts of interest have have destroyed the integrity of the scientific process. Um, and you know, the pharmaceutical stakeholders that caused the retraction of our paper, which we know this for a fact. I'm not going to tell you how I know this because I can't reveal the identities. I'm not making this up. I just found this out yesterday. It's not caused by Curious, the journal. It's caused mm-hmm. by the publisher and their stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So we need to have an independent publishing uh, system, and that's going to create, uh, you know, that's going to involve journals that are taking a pledge that they're not going to. Um, allow the industry to manipulate and control the agenda and the narrative. Uh, we're also going to need a new peer review process because mm-hmm. that, has been, that has been corrupted as well. I mean, all the reviewers we had were, were excellent, but now their work has been uh, unfortunately uh, besmirched <laughs> by this whole thing, you know, mm-hmm. and it's really sad. Uh, so that's that's basically the solution as I see it, you know, in this and situation. I think so too, Mr. Nathaniel Mead. I want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, being brave and thank putting you. out that paper because people don't understand there is a bravery to this. You are going against the machine right now. Thank and you. God bless you for doing that because if, if good men like you do nothing, then evil just persists. And we need strong men just like you, Mr. Mead, and Dr. Bocola and the other men in our country to start standing up and saying, no, we're not going to take it anymore. 
And yeah. I want to thank you so much thank for you. doing that in the scientific realm. And um, I can't wait to find out more about what happened. So you'll have to come in and share more if, if the story progresses. And, you know, well, when, well, you, when you... Thing, we are going to get this published in another journal. Fantastic. It's already been submitted. It's already been submitted. Fantastic. Well, yeah. thank you so much, uh, Mr. Thank Mead, for joining us today on the show. I really appreciate all the knowledge that you gave us. Thank you, Amber. Great to meet you. Thank you.